Father, this evening we want to thank you that there is power and authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And tonight, as one of your followers, I thank you for the privilege that I can kneel now, that I can acknowledge your Lordship now, your greatness and your glory. And we know that there are many who need to know that tonight. who need to be held in that promise and then that assurance that you are stronger. As we explore your word, speak powerfully to us through it and open our hearts. strengthen our faith because we ask it in his name Amen Good evening Good evening if you're joining us online thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. I know that there are many competing demands on your time and on yours here this evening. I don't take your attendance at a meeting for granted, and I'm grateful to you for investing your time by coming tonight. My name's Malcolm, and I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. There are many people that we know and that we love that are facing uncertainty tonight. Difficult and dark days. The most obvious for many of you will be Joel Brown and his family, Marion and Dave and Jake. And if ever there was a family that needed to know that their church were behind them, it's them. Thank you so much for your love and your support and your prayers for them. For those of you that are guests here or watching online as guests, Joel is a 15-year-old boy fighting for his life. But there are others here or watching online for whom life has thrown up other challenges, marriages that seem to be strong, crumbling around them, and they don't know what to do to fix it. Just last night, we heard that Diane Montgomery's uh, grandson, Scott, who was born yesterday morning, uh, had difficulty breathing. He had to face surgery this morning. You prayed. He's come through that surgery. We thank God for that. And he faces another set of surgery in six weeks. There are others who are walking with sadness and grief and uncertainty. And then, not perhaps people that you might know, but there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families in North California 
trying to find loved ones and their whole homes have been devastated by fire sweeping across that part of the world. The Rohingya refugees that refuse to leave Bangladesh tonight because they are afraid of returning to Myanmar. Those men and women that have been trapped in Syria and northern Iraq. All around the world there are people that are facing uncertainties and struggles and challenges. And sadness. How do you help them? What can you say to someone in a difficult set of circumstances that can keep them going? Or if you're facing those circumstances, and I'm not assuming that you're all Christians tonight, certainly not everybody watching online or here in the room, what do you do when you're facing trouble? How do you navigate it? Do you adopt the theology of the Christian science movement or the word of faith movement and pretend if you close your eyes and say it loud enough, it'll go away? Pretend that there isn't any real problem in the first place and just by confession, you can change the material situation that you're facing. I'm not sure that that is either a helpful or a good way of addressing uncertainty and sorrow and pain. Do you simply hold your hands up fatalistically and say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Life is life. What can we do to help other people or ourselves when we're going through uncertainty? When a storm hits you head on, what are you going to do to get through it? It's in the moments of darkness and uncertainty in our lives that we see who we really are. It's when the wind of adversity and the storm of uncertainty and the hurricane of fear sweeps down on you that you can discover what you really believe. And if you haven't already faced those storms, this isn't me being negative, but you will. Because life throws hard stuff at us. I pray that it's not too hard for you. But what do you do in that moment? Because what we do in those moments is vital. It can make the difference between surviving or going under. And how we see ourselves, or how, more importantly, how we see God and the world around us in those moments is profoundly important and in the end, a personal choice that you must make. And if, when we look inside, we discover that our resilience or our strength or the culture of our lives is less strong than we thought, if when we are in those moments, what grips us is fear and uncertainty and fragility, then what do we do? When the bottom falls out of our world and we need to keep going, how do we do it? How do we change the culture of our lives? Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to read just a few verses from that section of the Bible written by a man called Paul who after the Lord Jesus was probably the most influential character in early Christianity and certainly to today in terms of human beings has had the deepest and profoundest impact on the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 
verses 8 to 12. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. When I did a Google search for changing the culture of your life, not a single web page, article, or blog post matched it. Many talked about organizational culture and structure, but nothing about life, nothing about an individual's inner life. I think that's odd, given that if you do a Google search on almost anything, you'll find hundreds of thousands of pages about it. In a book called 59 Seconds, Think a Little, Change a Lot by Richard Wiseman, there are various tips about how to change your life, but not to change the culture of it, which I think are interesting. And to be honest, some of them are rather good. They range on topics from work to relationships to attraction to decision-making and to stress. So have a think about some of these because they might help you to change some aspects of your life. Avoid infidelity by keeping a photograph of your partner in your wallet, on your desk, or close to you where other people can see. Next time you attend an important meeting, obtain a quick and easy psychological advantage by sitting in the middle of the group. <laughs> I didn't know that would work. On a date. Now your ears have pricked up a bit. Start lukewarm and then become positive later. <laughs> Focus on the things that you both dislike first and mimic your date's body language. Who would have known? To provide a significant boost to your happiness, force your face into a smile and hold it for 20 seconds. Shall we try? <laughs> I didn't think you'd want to do that. The best way of getting someone to like you, this is interesting, is not to do them a favor, but rather to ask the, uh, them to do you a small favor. The 1970s psychologist Eric Fraum said, the greatest need in a human heart is not to be loved, but to love. And to know that your love makes a difference in somebody else's life. To reduce your eating and drinking, stick to a tall, narrow glass, put a mirror in the kitchen, and write down every single thing you eat. Well, who's going to do that? <laughs> There's a whole range of them that I could give you. But in the end they still don't answer the question because they're all changing behaviors. They're not changing the culture. They're not getting into the aching void at the center of our lives, the open chasm that we need to address if we want to do life better. It's the culture of our life that needs to change, not the window dressing. It's not the stuff around the outside. It's the stuff at the center. What do I mean when I talk about the culture of your life? Well, there are lots of definitions for culture, food, music, literature, art. 
Um, it was first used as a word in the 1870s by a British uh, psychologist and sociologist, but you're probably not particularly interested in that. But when I talk about culture, it's kind of stuff like the way we do things around here. It's the assumed norms and beliefs and practices of how you do your daily life. The culture of your life may be you don't eat breakfast until two o'clock in the afternoon or that you don't eat fast food, or that you, um, you don't go to certain areas of Belfast, or you don't um, use certain words. Our culture is our customs, our norms, our language, our dress, our music, our literature, what we watch on television, and it all exists in our minds. And it affects our language, our buildings, our behavior, our architecture, our attitudes, they express and they display the culture in our lives. They are not the culture of our lives. So what is the culture of your life? Is it fear? Is it worry? Is it doubt? Is it uncertainty? Is it hope? Are you a glass half full or a glass half empty or a no glass at all person? What do you bring to life do you feel as if it always owes you something? Do you have a sense of entitlement? Do you have a sense of feeling as if you're never going to get anywhere in it because you're stuck? Listening to some of the testimonies this morning in our baptismal service, I was deeply, deeply impacted by the fact that our youth ministry, 412, has a culture that is working. It is touching and changing young people's lives. And it's giving them a sense of identity and purpose and meaning and significance and value and worth and determination and courage. But what's the culture of your life? There are different layers to this. The layer of the society that you, we are part of. So if you're from Northern Ireland, like I am, then you will be shaped by the culture of Northern Ireland. Then there's a, a culture that you perhaps have lived in for a while. I've lived in England for over 30 years. So you hear that in the culture of my language because I don't say eight anymore. I say eight and look as if I'm eating a huge lump of cheese every time I do it. But that's only because English people didn't understand me. My son used to say, Dad, when you preach, your mouth looks normal until you say eight and faith. <laughs> There's a culture of where you've come from. There's a culture of where you've spent a lot of your time. And then there is a culture of your humanity the way you look at other people, the way you think about them, what you, your ideas are about sex, about gender, about sexuality, about family, about marriage, about money, about art, about where you live, about what you think life should look like. I've spent the last few months reflecting on the culture of this church every day, taking time to think and to pray, listening carefully to the Holy Spirit's voice, studying the scriptures, not for sermons, not for messages, not so that I have something to say on a Sunday. I've always got too much to say anyway. I didn't kiss the Blarney Stone. I swallowed it. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time every day thinking about the culture of our church. And as part of that, I'll be talking more about it next Sunday morning in our vision day that Pastor Davey talked about. I pray every week for every one of you that are part of this church family or connected to us formally or informally. And I ask God to give you a hunger for Jesus Christ. I ask him to give you a simple faith. I ask him to give you courage, generosity, 
boldness, openness, kindness. I ask him to make you loving, welcoming, people who dream of what could be. These last few months, as I have done that, I have found myself walking again and again and again difficult paths with many of you. Hospital appointments, loved ones, death, uncertainty, marriage difficulties, fears. In some ways, being a pastor means that that's what you sign up for. And I have to say to you this evening, I wouldn't stoop to be prime minister. It's one of the greatest privileges of my life to lead a flock like you. But I know life is messy. Tomorrow is the second anniversary of my mother's death. Last Monday was the fourth anniversary of my nephew's. So I'm not going to be at work tomorrow. I'm going to take some time to visit the graveyard, to place some flowers there, to cry a little, to be kind to myself and give myself time to think and to reflect and to remember and maybe to have a cup of coffee with my wife, if you'll buy me it. We all have to work out what we need to do to protect the culture of our lives. But as I've prayed for you, as I've prayed and walked this road last week with Joel and Jake and Marion and Dave, and as I've seen others walk through sadness and sorrow, the Thompson family, the Dixon family, the Hawthorns, the Robinsons, the McMullins, I've seen something in these people which is remarkable. Strength, resilience, grit, faith, courage, hope. They've got something about them that has carried them through those storms. And if I could bottle it and sell it, firstly, I'd be a very wealthy man. And secondly, we'd be a healthy and strong church. As I've watched them and as I've prayed for us and as I've prepared for the next four or five years of ministry for us together and we as a leadership team have thought and prayed about what the culture of our church might be. I keep coming back to the verses that I read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 which determine and display the culture of the Apostle Paul's life. Here he is saying that he has a treasure in a vessel of clay that he has an extraordinary power that is working him, at work in him, that he is afflicted but never crushed, perplexed but never driven to despair, persecuted but never forsaken, struck down but never destroyed, carrying the body, the death of Jesus in his body, presumably meaning that he'd been beaten and laughed at and mocked and rejected and alienated, and yet happy and joyful to do so because he wanted life to be at work in the lives of other people. What a remarkable thing. And the thought has struck me that the Apostle Paul faced the most horrendous situations in his life, and yet he kept going. He didn't give up. We know that he must have been close to it. As an older man, he writes a letter to a young pastor called Timothy, and he says, I get cold. Could you get somebody to send me my jumper or my coat, my cloak? 
I'd like to write some letters. Could you get some parchment sent to me? Let me know how such and such is and such and such is. Give this person my love. I miss being visited. Nobody seems to be bothered with me anymore. So he wasn't superhuman. He didn't put on his, 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 his big boy underpants. He was a normal man, and yet he kept going. He had a culture in his life that meant that he didn't give up. Where did it come from? Well, I think we can find out by going to the letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi. If you can find it in your Bible, it's called the book of Philippians. I want to read just a few verses to you. From verse 2, I beg your pardon, from uh, verse, yeah, from verse 2 down to verse uh, 11. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for it is we who are the, the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And he goes on to say that he leaves everything else behind and strains forward to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of him. He had a different culture and he could stack up all the stuff that had made him important before. I come from the right family. I've went to the right schools. I speak with the right accent. I know the right religious laws. I'm in the right bit of um, the religious institutions. I was taught by the right people. I moved around amongst the right circles. I come from the right social order. And yet, if I was translating the Bible literally, he says in the verses that I've just read to you, all of that is like human excrement compared to knowing Jesus. His culture so shifted that the center of his life reorientated around something difficult, different. He had a new focus on Jesus Christ. He had a new determination that nothing was going to come before him. He had a new hero in the person of Christ and all that he had done. In verses 20 to 21 of Philippians, he talks about his new identity as a citizen of heaven. He's no longer determined by being a Jew. He's no longer determined by being a Benjaminite or an Israelite or a Hebrew. He's not determined by those things anymore. He has a new identity. And in chapter four, verse one, he talks about the fact that he has a new purpose, a new passion, a new impetus. Paul's culture changed because he reorientated his life 
not around himself and what he was feeling, but around God in Jesus Christ. And he reminds his listeners and those that he taught that that change could take place in their hearts and in their lives as well. And he does it again and again when he writes to the Ephesian church in chapter two. He says, you used to be like this, but now you're like this in the first 10 verses. You used to be trapped, now you're free. You used to be broken, now God is making you whole. He says in Colossians chapter one, verses 21 to 23, you used to be trapped in darkness, but now you walk in light. In Romans chapter six and chapter seven, he says you used to have only one way of living and that was a broken way, but now you have a better way. The culture, not only of Paul's life, but of our lives can be changed. Nearly 30 years ago, I met a man. I made a mistake. I've made many since. But this man was a leader in the church. And I went to him and I said, I'm sorry for the mistake that I've made. And he said, to be honest, I'm not surprised. You'll never change. Because leopards never change their spots. That's what he said to me. I've reflected on that conversation for 30 years. What a load of twaddle. If it is true that change is not possible, why are we here? Why be part of a church? Why have a faith? If God isn't able to reach into you and fix the bits that are broken, if he's not able to slowly and lovingly and genuinely give you a new heart and a new perspective and a new way of living, then why even try? I don't believe that that man was right. I think that God is able to change us, to give us a new culture. Just because we were born in a bad set of circumstances doesn't mean we have to die in them. Just because our lives have been marked by sorrow and suffering, it doesn't mean that we can't have joy and hope. Just because everything seems to hit us at once, it doesn't mean that we have to give up. That's what Paul said. In effect, in 2 Corinthians 4, the verses that I've read to you twice now, he said, no matter what comes my way, there's something carries me through. And that something is Jesus. His grace and his love and his mercy. So what if, like Paul, you and I can have a new focus, a new determination, we can have a new hero at the center of our lives, a new identity and a new impetus? What if that's possible? Wouldn't you sell everything you had to get that? in a culture that is always talking about never being able to change, we can have the same conversations that we're having now about Brexit 20 times. They had them in the 1960s. They had them in the 1970s. Every time you look at a political generation, we have the same dialogue again and again and again. The bad news is education isn't going to give you that new impetus. It might help you, but it's not going to change you fundamentally. Politics isn't going to be able to do it. Society isn't going to be able to do it. Health kicks aren't going to be able to do it. There's only one person can give us the change that lasts, and it's God. But what if he wants to? What if that's the very reason that he has invaded the earth? To give us hope and to give us something to live for. When you look at Paul, it's one thing, but when you look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came in human flesh, according to John chapter one, you're in a whole different league. Here is a man who was mistreated more than any of us ever will be and yet never mistreated back. 
give you one example of him complaining about his circumstances. Here's a man who was attacked, vilified, marginalized, sidelined, eventually butchered. And yet there was a culture at the very center of who he was that transformed the world. He never wrote a word in his life. Yet he has influenced more people on planet Earth than anyone has ever influenced. What was the culture at the center of his life? Because I think that was the culture that was at the center of Paul's life. And that's the culture that I want to be at the center of my life. And when I look, and forbid, forgive me if you're going to feel as if, if you're a guest here tonight, I'm about to brag about our church. I'm not going to brag about it, but I am going to celebrate it. There's been enough rubbish said about churches. I'm going to celebrate mine. So put that in your hymn book and sing it. <laughs> when I reflect on the culture of 412 our youth ministry. When I reflect on the, the, um, the culture of our over 60s ministry, Evergreens, wonderful name. I'm glad they didn't call themselves non-deciduous trees. <laughs> when I reflect on the culture of Jules and Maxie's ministry, Generation X, when I reflect on our young adults, when I reflect on arrows and what we do with our children, there are commonalities that I begin to see. And the commonalities are the people that lead these love Jesus. They have a passion about seeing people encounter God and living in the fullness of God. They have a desire and a hunger and a yearning for people to be rooted in something different. And it's amazing to me to see exactly what that might look like in a whole church or in a whole generation here in Northern Ireland. Is it possible that God could change the culture of the church, not just our church? That he could sweep across the six counties. And in Fermanagh, Antrim, Tyrone, Londonderry, Armagh, Down, that's the only way I can remember it. He could raise up men and women with a deeper, clearer, stronger culture for Jesus. I think that's possible, you know. And I think it doesn't begin somewhere else. I think it begins with you and with me. Saying we want Jesus to be at the center of the culture of our lives. Just like he's at the center of so much that goes on in our church family here, the BB and the GB, and all of the things that we seek to do. If you're under 40, you've probably heard of Jesus culture. It's not the subject of my sermon tonight. It's a movement, really, of worshipers that spring out of North or West California. It began as a simple conference, oh, many years ago now, but at its heart, it has touched millions of people. People are critical of it for lots of different reasons. But at the very center of it is a desire to see men and women, young people particularly, encounter Jesus Christ. And to live in the fullness of who he is and what they want him to be. What, and, and giving themselves to him so that they will be what he wants them to be. The people that founded it in many interviews have talked about why they did it. And there were two fundamental driving forces in their music and in their movement. They were seeing a generation labeled as entitled, a younger generation. But in that generation, they also saw desperation for something real. So Jesus' culture began. 
an opportunity, an attempt to try and encounter people that desperately wanted to see reality and not just do religion. And the rest is history as God has moved in it and through it. My prayer is that you will adopt a Jesus culture in your life. And that boils down to really three very simple things. I want to suggest to you that if you want to change the culture of your life, then you need to make sure or change these three simple things. Write them down if you write things down. Open your phone. I give you permission to turn your phone on. If you're going to take a photograph of me, let me know so I can pose properly. Hold on. Anybody going to take a photograph of the preacher? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Go. <laughs> change your grip. Change your, change your gaze. And change your ground. First of all, the reason that Jesus Christ could endure everything was not simply that he was divine, because if he could only endure it because he was divine, then we've been sold a pup. He had to endure his life as a human, aided and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, but as a human, he had to endure what was going on around him. And he did it because his ground, he was rooted in something different. He wasn't rooted in populism. He wasn't rooted in the latest phase or the latest idea. He wasn't rooted in psychology. He wasn't rooted in all the things that other people told him. He wasn't rooted in what people felt about him. He wasn't driven by men and women's opinions of him. He didn't worry about what people thought about him. He was grounded. He was rooted in this reality that his father loved him and had a purpose for his life. What ground are you rooted in? I've met pastors, elders, doctors, lawyers, politicians, some of the most powerful men and women in the world. And in private, they are a bundle of insecurity. They spend their whole life worrying what somebody thinks about them. I once shared a platform with a man, a very well-known preacher. And after he and I and a couple of other people have preached, he turned to me and he said, how do you think I did? I said, you were fantastic. He said, thanks very much. Was I the best? I said, why do you need to know that? He said, I need to know I was better than everybody else. I recently had somebody say to me, do you want my dream for our church as pastor? I said, what's that? That we're better than everybody else. I said, that's not my dream. I don't want to be better than anybody else. My dream is that we will be what God wants us to be and that we will be rooted and grounded in the soil of God's grace and mercy and love. You can hide your insecurities from everybody except yourself and God. And if you are grounded in the wrong soil, then it will expose itself through short temper, through insecurity, through perfectionism, through driving yourself all the time to try and get more and more and more praise. You'll only be as good as the last conversation that you had. That is chaotic. It destroys you. It eats away at your self-confidence. It leaves you empty and void. Be grounded in something else. In John chapter 13, on the night that Jesus was betrayed... We are told this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been entrusted to him by his father, 
And knowing that, got up from the table, took a towel and a bowl, and began to wash the disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas, the one who would betray him. He was facing the darkest, most difficult moment of his life, and he was able to serve because he knew who he was. Don't take this the wrong way. I know who I am. I say that humbly, but I say it honestly. I am a child of the King. And whether you loathe me or love me doesn't change for one second what I think about myself because Jesus Christ loves me. It is the most liberating, life-giving thing. What ground are you planted in? God tonight can uproot you from insecurity, uproot you from fear, uproot you from anxiety, uproot you from uncertainty, uproot you from trying to please people all the time. And I think he wants to do it. And place your roots into fresh, beautiful, clean soil with water that will feed your soul for the rest of your life, knowing that you're loved, accepted, and forgiven by him. That's worth having. Change your gaze. If you look around you and the circumstances of your life dictate whether you are happy or sad, whether you are joyful or mournful, whether you are standing or falling, then you're going to fall more than you stand. Because circumstances are always going to come against you. You're always going to face them. You'll hear news that you didn't want to hear. You'll face uncertainty that you didn't want to face. Things will come against you. If you're a Christian, they'll come against you just because life is life but also because you have an enemy that wants to destroy your faith, that wants to eat away at your hope and your courage and your trust. And you'll hear whispers in your ear that tell you that this is how it's always going to be. You've got to lift your gaze. Where was Jesus' gaze? I think his gaze was on his father. His gaze was on the purpose of his father for him. His gaze was on what God had called him to do. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus, knowing the pain that lay before him for the sake of the joy that lay before him, endured the cross and its shame. He knew the right perspective. We think the present lasts forever and eternity is a moment. Eternity lasts forever and the present is a moment. We think that we cannot face suffering because it's unbearable. Whereas the New Testament tells us that Paul described those sufferings that he went through as momentary and light compared to the eternal weight of what God wanted to do in his life. We need to lift our gaze. We need to be reminded that whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Whether we go through joy or sorrow, we are God's. He never takes his eyes off us. Lift your gaze. Do not misunderstand what I am saying. I'm an old-fashioned pastor. I break my heart with those who are breaking their hearts. Just a few days ago, after leaving the hospital, it was a difficult day for Joel. I left. I got into the car. I locked it. Always a good idea when you're about to do what I was about to do. And I had a yell for about 20 minutes. Somebody was walking past. They heard me yelling. I think they thought I was having... 
some kind of fit. They knocked on the window, and I wound it down. I said, yes. They said, are you all right? I said, I'm fine. They went away, and then they came back, and they knocked the window again. Are you that pastor that's putting all those posts up about that young fella, Joel? I said, yes. Why are you yelling? I said, why do you think? I don't understand it. I'm struggling with it as much as you. I want to know some of the answers to questions that I'm not going to get answers to. But it's okay. Because I can simultaneously let all of that out and at the same time say, even if he slays me, yet will I praise him. It's more than possible as a Christian to feel as if you live in two worlds at the same time. One where your heart is breaking and the other where you are saying, God, will you do something? I have fixed my gaze on heaven and I'm not taking my eyes off it. There's a story told in uh, the book of Kings in the Old Testament where a king called Joab took a hold of the horns of the altar, two bits of it. He grabbed it and they said to him, let go. And he said, I will not let go until he blesses me. Let me tell you something, and you can criticize me if you like. My perspective, my gaze in our current situation as we walk with this family is firstly, they are important. And secondly, I'm not letting go of the horns of the altar. As long as as there is breath in my body, I am praying that God will break into this young man's life and that he will turn around the situation that he's facing. And I'm not going to stop praying it. And if God doesn't choose to do that, it will not be because I didn't ask. And if he doesn't choose to answer my prayers, he is still worthy of praise. He is still worthy of thanks. He is still worthy of honor. He is still worthy of worship. Nothing changes him. And if we can fix our gaze on God, if we can lift our eyes off everything else and say, I am looking at you, then our circumstances begin to become less demanding and less controlling of our joy and our peace and our hope. Some of you might have seen me at the beginning of this meeting kneeling on one of these um, steps. I'm nearly 50. It's easier to get down than it is to get up. And when you kneel now, I say, what else can I do while I'm down here? It's a good sign of getting older. I was kneeling because of that new song that you introduced Stuart, thank you for introducing it. And I was saying to God, in this moment, not in tomorrow and not in yesterday, in this moment, you are enough for us. And I will keep trusting that you are enough for us. Some of you say that isn't enough for me. Then you haven't discovered biblical Christianity. Because God doesn't tell you anything about tomorrow. He says, let me be enough for now. So is he? Church, is he? He is enough. Fix your gaze on him. With your disappointments, with your questions, with your anxieties, fix your gaze on him. And thirdly, make sure you've got the right grip. I recently had a conversation with a friend who was going through a difficult time. And she said to me, I'm drowning. 
And I said to her, let me say something to you that I want you to remember. God's feet always touch the bottom. You can't lift yourself out of the waves. But he can. His feet always touch the bottom. Many of us spend much of our Christian lives gripping God instead of letting him grip us. The hardest moment is when we have to say goodbye to someone that we love. Because we spent all of our lives holding their hands. And in the closing moments of their life, we must let them hold ours. Because they will let go of our hands. And I wonder if some of us tonight are gripping our circumstances so tightly that actually we're gripping them in fear. And in order to live differently, to change the culture of our lives, we must let go and let God grip us. There are two verses in the book of John that make a promise about God to every single person who will trust in him. One is about God the Father, and the other is about his son, Jesus Christ. And they both say this, he has you in his grip. You are doubly secure in him. If you're a Christian tonight, God's got a grip of you. He's not going to let you go. The Father grips you, and the Son grips you. So change your grip. Don't hold on to the things that you're holding on to that are unimportant. Hold on to God and let God hold on to you. Your ground, your gaze, and your grip. To change the culture of your life, everything else is window dressing. What soil are you planted in? What are you looking at? What's determining your mood, your emotions, and the direction of your life? And what are you holding on to? Be rooted in God. If you're not yet a Christian, the only way to be rooted in him is to let Jesus Christ get a hold of your life, sweep away everything else, and plant you in new soil. If you are a Christian and you're saying, I'm feeling very shaky, here's the soil that you need to be rooted in. You need to be rooted in God. You need to be rooted in his word. You need to let his grace and his mercy flood into your soul. Let him strengthen you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that God will give you grace and strength and mercy and help. I want to pray that your grip will be altered by the grace of God. I want to pray that tonight you have the capacity to lay things at his feet that you've been holding on to. And for some of you, I want to pray for healing, for restoration. Would you pray with me, please?
Lord, I want to pray first of all for those who have let the ground of their lives be their careers, or their position in society, or their family, or their wealth, or their education, or their knowledge. I lift to you those who have been rooted in the approval of others, who wake up every morning anxious because they're not loved by someone or they're not good enough for someone's praise. In the name of Jesus, let these wonderful people be rooted in your grace and mercy. Let them be rooted in what you say about them. Pray for those who have rooted themselves in what culture says and what their emotions say and how they feel and, and, and everything else. Let them be rooted in you. Take away the fear of women and men in the lives of folk here tonight and online. Break in by the power of the Holy Spirit and open hearts and lives to you. I want to pray for those whose gaze is fixed on trouble, who are dominated by fear, dominated by their circumstances, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give them the ability to fix their gaze on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith. Help us to lift our eyes from the waves and to see you. Help us to be reminded that you remain constant no matter what. And I want to pray for those whose grip needs to be loosened tonight on circumstances, on people. Would you open our hands and help us to remember that your grip on us is more important. Break us free tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit from those things that have controlled us. And I ask you specifically for those that have never trusted you yet, online or in this room, who have been told by others that they can never change, that their lives are stuck. Would you bring them life and freedom and grace in the powerful name of Jesus? Would you show them the forgiveness of their sins, help them to turn to you and be set free? I want to pray for those that have been in the grip of grief for years in the grip of loss. They can't get over the circumstances that they've gone through. By the power of the Holy Spirit, break in and bring freedom and life and comfort and strength in Jesus' name. I pray for a moving of your spirit across this room and online. And I declare the power of Almighty God, the one who breaks chains and sets people free, and changes perspectives and gives people new hope. Break the lies and the fear and the anxiety that has rested on many and set them free in Jesus' name. Now I have two requests while you're bowed in prayer. The band are gonna come back at this moment and help me. No one else's business. This is no one else's business. But if you know tonight, if you're a Christian this evening, online or in this room, and you know that actually you need God to reorientate you, to be grounded in Him, 
to be gripped by him, to have your gaze set on him. That's you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front and receive prayer. All I want you to do is say, Malcolm, that's what I need God to do in me. As a Christian, that's what I want my life to be orientated around. I need this to happen. And I'm saying, God, I want you tonight to do that. Where you are, nobody is looking in the room. Put your hand up and then take it down again, please, now. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God is moving here. If you're online, send us a little text or an email. If you're under 18 to Davy at dundonaldelam.church. If you're over 18 to Pip at dundonaldelam.church so we can pray for you and support you. Let nothing get in the way of what God wants to do in your heart tonight. Nothing. Don't care how long you've been a Christian. Don't care what roles or responsibilities you've had. God is able to take you further tonight in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And my second question is for those of you that are not yet Christians, online or here, if you have said tonight, I want God, I need his grace and his mercy, I need his forgiveness, I need to be reorientated around him for the first time, or you wandered away from him years ago and you're coming back to him tonight, then again, email us, under 18, Davey at dundonaldelam.church, over 18, pep at dundonaldelam.church. And if you're in the room tonight and you're saying, I am returning to Jesus or I am giving my life to him and I'm laying it all at his feet because I can't do this anymore, then put your hand up so I can pray for you. Let me see so that I can know that you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Somebody did that this morning. I want to give you the chance. I always will, unapologetically. Step across the line. Thank you so much. Step across the line. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. God is at work in this place. Lives are being changed. Hallelujah. Lord, thank you for what you're doing. Continue your work by the power of your spirit in the lives of those that responded this morning and tonight. Root them in you. Give them new ground, a new grip, and a new gaze, and set them free. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's welcome those people into the family of God tonight. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me as we give thanks to our great God? If you want somebody to pray with you, we're here. The prayer clinic on a Tuesday is a fantastic time to come and receive prayer. I'm looking forward. I tell you, last Friday morning at seven, from seven to 9 a.m., we had a fantastic time of prayer. Same at lunchtime. We'd love to see you. Come and pray. Let God encounter you and transform you. Let's worship him together as we sing our praise to Almighty God. Worthy Lord.